Welcome to the 1515, brought to you by the regulatory legal experts at the Maples Group. Here, you will learn more about the latest developments in the regulatory laws of the Cayman Islands on the 15th day of every month. Hello and welcome to the February 2024 instalment of the Maples Group Regulatory 1515 podcast, where we discuss the latest developments in regulatory law in the Cayman Islands. My name is Tim Dawson, and I'm a partner in the regulatory services team here at the Maples Group. Joining me today is Adam Huckle, fellow partner in the Cayman Islands office. In this February edition, we're going to look at the developments that have taken place since our last recording in January. Before we get started, please note that the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice and should be taken as a general update only. If listening in from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource documents and speaker information in the description. If you've clicked on the media player link sent to you via email, you can find this information in the notes section. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Let's get started. Before I hand you over to Adam, I thought I'd just give you an update uh, with respect to the EU AML delisting. In, in our last podcast, I foreshadowed the fact that this was expected, and indeed, a few days later, it took place. On the 18th of January, the European Commission published a delegated regulation confirming that the Cayman Islands would be removed from its list of high-risk third countries. This is also known as the EU AML list. The EU AML list refers to countries identified by the EU as having strategic deficiencies in their anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regimes. And as we discussed last month, the EU's decision to delist the Cayman Islands is consistent with the FATF's recent assessment of the Cayman Islands and the recent removal of the Cayman Islands from the UK's list of high-risk countries for AML and CFT purposes. Where this was likely to have the most direct impact is in the sphere of securitizations, because following the delisting of the Cayman Islands from the EU AML list, Article 4 of the EU Securitization Regulation will no longer prohibit the establishment of securitization special purpose entities in the Cayman Islands. So now it's a simple matter of choice as to whether the Cayman Islands or Jersey or any other jurisdiction not on the EU AML list is used for the establishment of such securitization special purpose entities. And with that welcome update, I'm going to hand you over to Adam, who's going to discuss news with respect to other aspects of our proceeds of, of crime and anti-money laundering legislation. Thanks, Tim. Yes, there have been some changes to our Proceeds of Crime Act, and those were made at the end of January of this year. These were largely about improving the intelligence gathering and investigation provisions, as well as providing protection for self-regulatory body and modernising prosecutions. And those are all now currently in force. However, it's the changes to the defences to the criminal property offences in our Proceeds of Crime Act and how those changes will interact in practice with suspicious activity reporting that I would like to discuss briefly today. Now, those changes don't come into force until 30 of April this year. So you have a little bit of time to get familiar with them before they come into force. So as many will be aware, there are numerous criminal offences in the Proceeds of Crime Act to do with concealing, disguising, converting, transferring or removing criminal property from the Cayman Islands, or being concerned in an arrangement that facilitates the retention, use or control of criminal property, or acquiring, using, or having possession of criminal property. Those are all contained within part five of POCA, Proceeds of Crime Act, around about sections 133 to 135. Now, currently, a person doesn't commit an offence under any of those provisions if they file a suspicious activity report or SAR with the Financial Reporting Authority making full disclosure of the issue. That act of filing a SAR acts as a pure defence to the criminal offence, 
assuming, of course, that the entity filing the SAR is not itself part of the criminal wrongdoing. And that is why it's quite common to see entities, you know, particularly banks, when they have reasonable cause to suspect that money they're holding on behalf of a client may be proceeds of crime, but they have a contractual obligation to repay that money to the client or somewhere else, for example, by way of transfer, dividend, redemption, payment, etc. What they do is they file a SAR with the FRA explaining the position and notifying the FRA that you know they'll be paying out the money to the client under the terms of the contract in, say, two or three weeks' time. And that effectively gives the FRA a reasonable period of time to pass on that information to the relevant foreign criminal authority, for example, or to ask further questions and or to use the FRA's legislative powers to freeze or seize the cash, etc. However, from the 30th of April, when these changes come into force, that practice is going to have to change. Now, that's because the amendments mean that in order for the SAR defence to apply to those same criminal property offences, SAR notification isn't enough. You will now need to wait until the FRA actually consents to the transaction in question. So to put it in another way, rather than simply notifying the FRA that you intend to deal with the suspected proceeds of crime in your SAR, you're now going to need to ask the FRA's permission before you deal with those proceeds. And you will only be able to avail yourself of the statutory defence if the FRA does in fact approve that transaction. Now that's not something out of left field. It aligns with the standard practice in England where entities seek the permission of the UK's National Crime Agency to undertake similar action in those circumstances. So the changes are very understandable and they're backed up by significant UK experience, but they are important changes nonetheless and will result in changes to some SAR reporting. Of course, We'll wait to see how this all works in practice. For example, how quickly the FRA determines each request for permission is currently unknown and presumably will depend on the facts. And also what may need to occur should the FRA not grant such permission or a response isn't received within time is another point. Certainly clients may find themselves having to look closer at the criminal property offences once these changes come into effect on the 30th of April. Thanks, Adam. That's an interesting update, and it will change practice somewhat when it comes to the filing of SARS in the Cayman Islands. The next thing I'm going to talk about is some draft changes to the AML regulations. To me, they look like tidy-ups, but perhaps um, you can give us your thoughts. Sure. Thanks, Tim. So on the 23rd of January this year, the government pre-released to various industry associations the anti-money laundering amendment regulations that you just highlighted. Now, those amendment regulations for the receipt of draft amended regs and a period of consultation that took place uh, between March and April last year. First, the proposed amendments relate to the inclusion of language regarding proliferation financing, basically making it clear that obligations under the AML regulations relate not only to AML and countering terrorist financing, but also to counter proliferation financing. Second, there's now the ability to fine directors and officers personally for breaches of the AML regulations. Now, this has always been a risk, but it hasn't been overly clear how, in terms of jurisdiction and statutory power, directors and officers would be fined in practice. But these changes make it clear that such fines could be imposed on directors and officers and not just on the entity itself. Thirdly, there are some changes to Regulation 8 of the AML regulations, which is all about risk assessments and the application of a risk-based approach to those risk assessments. 
Now, in my view, Reg 8 is one of the areas upon which the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority may well be focusing in on-site inspections going forward. Now, those changes make it clear that when implementing policies control procedures, entities must do so in a way that is consistent with national requirements and guidance from competent authorities and self-regulatory bodies, where higher proliferation financing risks are identified, so when there's high-risk proliferation financing, entities must take measures to mitigate the identifying risks, including enhanced due diligence. And where lower proliferation financing risks are identified, entities must ensure measures to manage risks are commensurate with the level of risks and comply with targeted financial sanctions applicable in Cayman. And fourth and finally, there are amendments regarding designated non-financial businesses and professions, you know, such as law firms, for example, and those changes include a new duty on such DNFBPs to produce documents and information when supervisory authorities issue notices, a requirement for DNFPBs to disclose their ownership of control structure, including records of beneficial owners, and a new requirement to notify the supervisory authority of certain changes within 30 days of the change, including a change in the assessment of the risk of the DNFPB after conducting a risk assessment in conjunction with the AML regulations, information maintained on the DNFPB's register, and information provided to register the DNFPB with the supervisory authority. Some changes there, not all of those relevant to all of our clients, but certainly worth noting, Tim. I agree with you. And I think going back to the risk assessment point, I mean, the fact that the regulations now prescribe the requirement for low risk assessments as well as high risk, I, I think underlines the fact that SEMA on inspection will be looking for a record of risk assessments having been undertaken. So it is therefore absolutely key that, that all of our clients do undertake such risk assessments and memorialize them accordingly. So thanks, Adam. Just one last update with respect to economic substance. There have been some changes to the economic substance regime, but they're really consolidations of prior amendments. Exempted limited partnerships and foreign limited partnerships are now, quote unquote, relevant entities for the purposes of the economic substance regime. And the ultimate beneficial owner definition is now for each type of relevant entity and not just companies, point being the definition keys back to the definition of ultimate beneficial owner under the Companies Act, but will now be applied to, to partnerships, which, as I was saying, are now deemed to be relevant entities. Uh, reporting deadlines are unchanged. If nothing else, I guess, just a reminder for all of our clients to ensure they're up to date with their economic substance notifications for those with a year end at the end of the year. We're hopefully through your reporting requirements, but if you did have a year end reporting requirement, then do please ensure your filings are made if they haven't been made already. That concludes all we have to say. Thanks again, Adam, for taking the time out of your schedule to chat about these latest developments. To our listeners, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly for bespoke advice. And thank you all for listening and subscribing. 